0: Are you ready for spring migration? With May just around the corner, it's time to register for the Indiana Dunes Birding Festival. Woodlands, grasslands, marshes, swamps, and miles of Lake Michigan shoreline make Indiana Dunes a birding hotspot. The 2022 festival, May 11 through May 15, features over 150 events, including field trips, workshops, and inspiring and entertaining presentations headlined by author and educator David Lindo, the urban birder. For the full up-to-date schedule and to register, visit INDunesBirdingFestival.com. Registration closes May 1st.
1: Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. The American Ornithological Society's North American Classification Committee proposals are out in their entirety. They took a while to publish this year. They are, of course, the splits and lumps that we all look forward to every year, and at least previously the name changes, though they have been less forthcoming with those in recent years in light of the Bird Names for Birds effort. We haven't talked about that much lately. Frankly, not a lot has gone on. There's a committee being formed. There's chairs of that committee. I don't know who they are. Uh, but I've heard good things from people who do. So it's ongoing, slowly perhaps, but but ongoing. To the proposals, uh, there's nothing exceptionally controversial up this year, uh, though the same could be said for last year. And we'll have a friend of the podcast, Nick Block, on later this spring to really dig in. But some proposals that kind of caught my eye include those proposing to go back on recent decisions, namely the lump of Northwestern Crow and the split of Crossbill. Crossbell. I, I don't know enough to comment on the merit of those, but offhand, they seem unlikely, given that those were less than five years ago. Uh, there are a lot of cool splits of localized Central American and Caribbean populations, including things like San Lucas robin and Tres Maria's hummingbird, endemic island subspecies of American robin and broad hummingbird, respectively. There's a proposal to make the Central American band-tailed pigeons their own species. That's cool. Those of us who have birded in the tropics are certainly familiar with those. There are proposals to split red-legged thrush into three species and house wren into an incredible seven species, all of which are in the Caribbean. Avian radiation in the Caribbean is spectacular and probably underappreciated, especially if the variation of a species as ubiquitous as house wren is only just now getting taxonomic recognition. Some of the some of the photos of these Caribbean house wrens, I'm using house wrens in quotes, are amazing and, and very different from the house wren you're familiar with on the North American mainland. Uh, they have white bellies, they have longer bills, they have completely different vocalizations, they're easily different birds. Are they seven different birds? I don't know. I think that if you split one out, you sort of have to do the whole lot. There's the long-awaited whimbrel split from the white-rumped old-world birds and the cinnamon-rumped new-world birds, which would presumably be called Hudsonian wimbrel, an honorific of Henry Hudson, but one of those second-order ones that refers mostly to the bay in Canada. I don't really know what to do about those. My opinion is that they're sort of a lower priority than the apostrophe S birds, but it's neither here nor there. Uh, My favorite proposal, though, comes from friend of the ABA, Alvaro Jaramillo, with regards to the well-received split of Laris Canis, but the Poorly received choice of short billed goal to refer to the North American daughter species. The paper effectively reads like, Y'all, what are you doing? Mew is a fine name. Everyone knew what Mew meant. Old world birders call it Mugle. New world birders call it Mugle. We all understood each other. Why, why make things confusing when you don't have to? I have to say, I sort of agree. Um, I don't know if it will resonate but the comparison to the clapper rail split where clapper was retained to refer to the Eastern birds and the well-known and well-used Ridgeways was used for the Western words. Good analogy. I I don't know what will happen. We'll talk to Nick about it in a couple of months. I'm sure he has insight. I think what's most clear is that no muse is not necessarily good muse. (laughs) The rest of the episode is an encore. I hope that's okay. I'm in Florida with family right now. Uh, I'm trying to make work easy for me. But I'm bringing you a great interview that I actually referenced earlier this month with Dr. Lauren Benedict, whose work on female bird songs has significantly broadened our understanding of bird vocalizations. There's no rare bird focus today. I'm out. I'll catch up next week. Lauren Benedict is coming up right now. The incredible variety of birdsong in a morning chorus on a spring or summer day is a phenomenon that a lot of birders are familiar with, but even after decades, centuries even, of study, there's still a lot we don't know about bird vocalizations, for instance, Female birds sing too, and their vocalizations are frequently as complex and important in the lives of those birds as the songs we associate with male birds and It's only relatively recently that we've sort of begun to really look into that. Dr. Lauren Benedict from the University of Northern Colorado has been on the cutting edge of this science. She is with me now to talk about her work with bird vocalizations and female birds in general. Uh, thanks for joining me, lauren welcome
0: thanks, thanks very much for having me
1: how How prevalent are female bird songs is there you know, specific groups of birds that they're they're more common in than others? Yeah, there are. So uh, for those of us who live here in North America
0: in a temperate zone, you know, it doesn't seem that prevalent. Uh, if you lived in Australia or if you lived in South or Central America, you would think that female bird song was just as common as male because in a lot of those places it is. So it's quite prevalent in tropical areas. And in many of the tropical areas of the world, yeah, uh, females sing just as much as males do. But despite this bias in female birdsong prevalence, kind of across the world, it's actually pretty common in temperate areas as well. If you look just across North America in kind of the United States and Canada ABA area, you find that more than 40% of all of our songbirds, our passerines, have female song. And I think if you had to guess, I'd say that's probably an underestimate because I think it's overlooked in a lot of places. And in those 40% that do have female song, we know very little about it, and we'd love to know more about when females are using it, how they're using it, how common it is. Given all of that, the kind of current estimate is that across the world, about sixty-five percent of species maybe have singing females.
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. So so why do you think it has taken so long to sort of acknowledge the, the presence of female bird songs? Why it, it feels like this is information that um is rel- only relatively recently been that people have sort of realized.
0: Yeah, and it's funny. It's kind of new to us, us who live here in North America. Yeah. I was chatting with an Australian recently, and he said, this isn't news to us. We know that females sing. <laughs> but there's been a real bias in kind of who is publishing and making a lot of kind of noise about their own research, and Europeans and Americans tend to do that. And we yeah. think that females sing less. Uh but that's just because we live in a place where females sing less and that's not true across the world. So there's kind of a geographic bias to it for sure. Yeah. And then there is also a history in science of, you know, males being kind of the the major study organism.
1: Right. Yeah. It, it is so funny when you think about, I don't know if this is just true in natural sciences or maybe it's just like a general science thing that in some ways, so much of the initial work that was done was done in like the you know, 18th and 19th centuries. And so in a lot of ways, we're still dealing with sort of like 18th and 19th century biases yeah. <laughs> with regard to, you know, how, <laughs> how birds operate. You know, there's these gender biases that were more common back then than maybe, you know, we're starting to question them in the 21st century. And it seems like it's, it's relevant in, in, for birds as well. It seems like it's happening with birds in addition to everything else.
0: It is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for lots, for a long time, males were the important study organisms and females were thought to sort of, oh yeah, well, they probably do what males do or they do something different, but it's unimportant. Um, But in fact, females do all kinds of fascinating things that might be different from males. They might be the same, but if we don't look closely, we don't even know.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, we certainly have an idea of why male birds sing to establish territories and attract female birds to those territories. That's Probably a very broad explanation of it. But are there any theories about why female birdsong evolved, you know, if it did so in a way that is sort of different from a male bird song?
0: Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And uh, in fact, we know a little bit about the evolutionary history of song in perching birds, in passerines, the ones that we think of as the little tweety songbirds. And in that group, we think that the ancestor of that group had female song. So it's not that oh, okay. males gained fancy song and suddenly got all elaborate and special. It's that males and females sang in the ancestors and in some groups, probably when they started migrating and moving into the north temperate zones or south temperate zones, uh, they lost song. So there must be some reason that females do better without song in some of those places.
1: Uh, that's interesting. I wonder if that's sort of related to... Um you know plumage too you know male birds and a lot of passerine species have bright plumage as well do you think that those sort of might have been you know occurring together like those some might be related in some way
0: yeah. And there is, there's good research asking exactly that question. When females lose song, do they also become uh, duller in color, right? Less bright, less elaborate. And the answer to that is generally yes. <laughs> when oh, they have huh. more elaborate songs, they also often tend to have more elaborate colors. So species that have really different appearances also have really different song behaviors and vice versa.
1: Mm-hmm. Huh. So what are some of the the most interesting things that you've learned about Bird song in female birds in the, in the time that you've been looking at it?
0: Yeah. So I think it's really interesting that it's, first of all, that point that I made before that females have lost song. Because we often mm-hmm. look at male song and say, okay, it's elaborate, it's fancy. Why is it that evolution has made males so fancy? But that's kind of the wrong question. It should instead be, why is it that some females have moved away from that signal? And the ones that kept it, uh, how are they using it? And they're using it in all the same ways that males are, which I think is really interesting. So there are some females that sing to attract mates. There are some females that sing to defend territories. There are some females that duet with their partners in really fascinating ways. So males and females can coordinate vocalizations. And I think that kind of the mechanics of all of that is super interesting.
1: Yeah, I remember the first time I ever sort of witnessed that was on my, my very first trip to the tropics. Uh, several years many years ago, and um it was a uh, one of the wood wrens I forget mm. this was in Costa Rica, and like they were singing this kind of ratchety song, and it was coming from one bush, and then the second part of it was coming from another bush, like very nearby, but you could hear them the rhythm kind of going back and forth and back and forth, and I guess until that point, I didn't really think about female birds singing even though even though they did where i you know in North America where I was where I had grown up and started birding yeah um it you know, wrens seem to be a species that does a lot of that. Is there a reason why tropical wrens seem to be more inclined to doing those sort of duetting behaviors than, say, our um, you know our, the one that I have in my backyard, Carolina wren? <laughs>
0: Yeah, tropical wrens are amazing. Some of those tropical wrens, as you say, I mean, it sounds
1: like one bird going back and forth. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Not even taking a breath.
0: (laughs) Right. It's unbelievable. Yeah, you can look up plain-tailed wren duets and things like that. What's really cool, this is a bit of an aside, and I will get to your question, no, but no. first of all, <laughs> no, what's really take, take, cool, take
1: the side, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> some people have looked at the brains and what neural you know activity is kind of controlling this. And when they look at those wrens that are duetting so tightly in time like that, they find that their brains are firing just the same way that they would if they were singing the entire song, but they're each only singing half of it. Oh, really? So it's like in their mind, they're singing their partner's song. But then in reality, they're actually only producing their song.
1: Wow, that is really cool. (laughs) Yeah,
0: so the way that they're coordinating it uh, is super interesting, both the way they actually sing and then also how the brain makes that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, But back to the question of why we think... Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Why the Carolina Wren uh, sings a little less. It seems that migration is connected to duetting behavior. And when animals are migrating they're less likely to have a lot of female song and they're less likely to have those complicated duets and this hmm. might be because migration is hard and so you can't invest in things like song because when you get to the north wherever it is north breeding area uh you have to spend a lot of time breeding and you can't focus on song so that's one of the theories hmm. uh the other possibility is that holding a territory year-round is hard, and males and females both need Hmm. to sing in order to be able to do it in those dense tropical areas where there's a lot of competition for that territory. And so two individuals together coordinating songs and both singing really well will help them defend that territory and have the year-round resources they need better.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I'm reminded, and, and you can tell me whether I'm completely off base on this or not, but I'm reminded of uh, something I read. This may have been on something, some sort of nature documentary about birds in uh, Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in Papua New Guinea, birds of paradise, bowerbirds, they have these really elaborate breeding behaviors. In the case of the birds of paradise, it's these crazy songs and sounds and displays. And the bowerbirds, they build these cool bowers. Mm-hmm. And one of the explanations for that was that there is so much naturally occurring food in this, in Papua New Guinea, that they are able to, they don't have to spend all this time looking for, looking for food. They can actually develop these sort of really elaborate behaviors around, you know, breeding. Mm-hmm. Is, is there something similar potentially going on in the tropics, um, in, in the American tropics with wrens? Because there's, there is so much food. It's relatively easy to find and they're able to evolve these kind of more elaborate behaviors that we do not get in North America where, you know, we've got six months of the year in some places where it's actually very difficult to find food.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting thought. You know, I haven't thought about that applied in this situation. Most of these wrens are monogamous. So the ones that are duetting mm-hmm. like this with lots of female song, they're monogamous. So right. in those yeah. pop- in all of the bowerbirds and those birds of paradise, which are amazing, they're not monogamous, and the females yeah, sort of can famously
1: take the opposite. Of that, <laughs>
0: yes, <too>. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Once the female does all the parenting work, then the males are kind of freed up to just spend all their right. time courting females. And with hmm. the most of the duetting species, that isn't usually the case. And instead, they're working yeah. together to be parents. So
1: hmm.
0: I think, in some ways, it's more pressure for them to signal to each other. It's not just that males need to signal to females something, but females need (laughs) to signal right back. And they're kind of mutually assessing each other and making sure that each partner is there in these situations. And that can drive the duetting and the need for females to sing and really show males that they're good potential mates and to show other females that, hey, this is my territory. I'm here. Uh, Stay away.
1: Yeah. We're we're both in different parts of the United States, but what birds do we have that do some sort of duetting behavior that uh, people who might be listening would be familiar with?
0: Yeah, so there aren't as many that do, none of the North American species do those really tightly coordinated duets where mm-hmm. it sounds like one bird, you know, singing in unison. Um, but there are some really cool North American duetters. One of my favorites is the very modest and nondescript California towhee which Uh I've studied um, for years. And they have this funny kind of squealing sound. Uh, I I wish I could imitate it well, I'll do my best. (laughs) It's kind of a choo, 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 noise. And that's actually a duet. Uh, In that species, males sing a kind of tink, 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 tink song. And then as soon as Uh they get a mate, they stop singing that song and the primary vocalization they use is this funny duet, this squeal duet? And it's not just California towies, huh. it's Aberts and Canyons and all of those kind of brown in color towies.
1: The brownie towies, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Is there something about that? I mean, these are all kind of southwestern, western species. I think of especially, you know, Canyon and Aberts as, uh, you know, being kind of desert scrubland species. Is there something about the habitat that sort of inclines them towards that behavior or is it just s- sort yeah. of random?
0: I think it's something about being um, kind of part of that group, that their ancestor Mm -hmm. evolved this way of communicating with their mates. And then they've all maintained it, despite the fact that they've split into multiple species. They're still doing this behavior Mm -hmm. that seems really important. They use it to coordinate. What's interesting with them is every time, so either the male or the female can start the duet. And when one of them starts it, the other one joins in and they always fly towards each other. So it's definitely a come on over here kind of signal.
1: Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, I always think of Northern Cardinals as being a a bird that does a lot. Well, females, female Cardinals sing a lot. They do. Um, Is there a way that you can differentiate the male songs from the female songs or do they sing similar songs? They
0: actually sing very similar songs. I personally, Mm -hmm. if I'm hearing something, can't tell you if it's a male or a female. And, Mm There has been research. There was one very cool study that raised Northern Cardinal males and females and allowed them to hear the songs of males and females to try and figure Mm -hmm. out, okay, do males only learn male songs and females only learn female songs? And they could learn anything. Oh, wow. So females can actually learn to sing the song of a male in their neighborhood. Males can learn to sing the song of a female in their neighborhood. So they really don't sound different, which is... Kind of an interesting thing there.
1: Are there any species where the female actually sings more than the male?
0: There are a few, yeah. um Stripe-headed sparrows are one that jumps to mind, and some orioles also. Orioles have a lot of female song, and and there's been good documentation in some species there.
1: Wow, that's pretty interesting. I know that you know there's a lot of, but it'd be difficult to tell because some female orioles actually are very colorful. They quite like like young male orioles. It'd be really hard to tell if you heard something singing. You know, I always assume that it's the male, but there's no reason to think
0: it's Yeah. And I was just going to say, I think a lot of people jump to that conclusion immediately, right? You Mm -hmm. hear a singing bird, you assume it's a male. And that's particularly true in species that look the same, right? Females and males, essentially, you can't tell them apart by eye. So if you look at a black-capped chickadee and you hear it sing the Phoebe song, Mm -hmm. you think, oh, must be a male. Yeah. And most of the time it is, but females also sing that
1: song. You and um you and Dr. Karen Odom published a paper in the Auk uh, last year called uh, a call to document female bird songs with a whole lot of whole list of sort of fascinating applications. Uh, what sort of questions do you think knowing about female bird songs will help you answer?
0: I think it can really help us answer a lot of questions. For so long bird song as a model system has been really important for everybody trying to understand how animals learn different signals how their brains work, how they yeah. remember these signals, how they use them. But 95% of that research has been on males again. right. So everything we're learning as kind of the canon of how song works is males. And for females, if we start to study them both, we can look a lot at how how it is that they produce the sounds they produce. Are males and females similar hmm. in their anatomy and physiology? We can learn a lot about... How their learning and memory works. Do Mm -hmm. males and females learn songs the same way? So, like with the cardinal example you just asked about, they seem to be able to learn each other's songs. But one thing that's a little different is that females learn their songs earlier and have less flexibility to learn songs later in life than males do in that species. Huh? Yeah, and I I have no idea if that's a general rule across birds because the research has only been done on that one species.
1: Wow, you you and Dr. Odom put together this uh, female bird song project. Um, So what what are you trying to accomplish with this?
0: Yeah, we um, would love for citizen scientists to contribute and to be part of this ultimate goal of learning more about female song form and function. And there are so many opportunities (laughs) to go out and record songs anywhere, especially these days that you can just record birds with a cell phone. Yeah, super easy. A good (laughs) recording app. Exactly. And the thing about female song is that it does occur in North America less frequently than male song. So we have to have a lot of ears listening for it and eyes looking. And our first kind of call to action is if you hear a singing bird, don't assume it's a male. Take a good look at it. And if you have a, a good reason to believe it's a female, either because based on its plumage, it looks like a female or because of some behavior maybe, it's building a nest, it's incubating, something like that, Um, then record it and document that. And you can upload all of these things through the Macaulay Library in eBird. Mm -hmm. And if you upload it through eBird, you can tag it with, for the female bird song project, you can just put that in the comments and it'll come to us and it'll be used by scientists studying this question all over the world.
1: Yeah, so so a lot of times it does require you to actually get a look at the bird that's singing. Yeah, I mean mm-hmm. that's got to be difficult, especially in those species where the where the sexes look very very much the same. So how how do you figure that out? Do you, does it require that observation of the behavior, or can is there, you know, other any assumptions that you can make?
0: Yeah, that is really hard if they look the same. And even, I will say, even in species where males and females look different, occasionally um, you might have a bird in a plumage that's a little uncertain. You're like, that looks kind of like a female, but maybe it's just a juvenile male. We realize that that happens. But better to upload it and document everything that you notice and why it might possibly be a female, just so that other people can then look at it and make an educated decision about Mm -hmm. whether or not they want to use that. And with species that truly are monomorphic, males and females, you can't tell them apart. It's really that behavior piece for sure. So in some species, only females incubate. If you watch them long enough, maybe you, I don't know, are lucky enough to see a copulation and then you know who's the male and who's the female. Yeah. (laughs) Or perhaps there are other behavioral cues.
1: Yeah. So is there any other sort of female bird-specific research going on? I mean, it feels like that if we've overlooked this sort of vocalization angle for so long, there has to be a ton of other stuff that we could be exploring as well. There
0: is. And I think this is really an important kind of new frontier for ornithology right now. So there are lots of people looking at things like hormones and how those affect birds and how male and female hormone profiles differ and how different kinds of hormones might be causing different behaviors in the two. And there's, there's a lot of fascinating work on that. There's also really interesting research on things like migration patterns which we've known for a long time can be different in males and females. So often on, you know, during spring migration the males come through first. They're trying to get up north and get those territories early, then females come through later. Um but there's also things like at in their wintering grounds, males and females sometimes actually go to slightly different wintering grounds. And huh. this can be really important. Uh, I saw a fascinating talk by this uh, on this topic by Ruth Bennett, who's at the Smithsonian, where she pointed out that most of the research that's done on sort of tracking migrations and looking at where birds are wintering is done on males. Hmm. And if we're identifying wintering grounds of males, but not females, then conservation efforts might be less effective than they could be because oh, yeah. you're not getting the range of... The entire
1: species. Sure. Is there a, is there a species where that, where that occurs? An example?
0: Yeah, in fact. <laughs> so, off the top of my head, I can't remember the one that she gave a bunch of examples <laughs> where she knew <laughs> there are many examples where there are uh, differences in male and female wintering grounds. And all of the conservation plans only described the wintering ground. And there was only one conservation plan that had both males and females included, but I oh, can't wow. remember the species.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I know, like, you know, ducks do that. Because uh, you know the males mm-hmm. go through that eclipse plumage. I guess the females do too. But the the males will kind of congregate in some places, and they'll do this you know this brief flightless period. And in some species, like it, it's only relatively recently that we figured out where they're even going. It's sort of fascinating stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: yeah. There are a lot of species that we still don't know for sure where they're spending their winters. That's wild.
1: So what are you what are you working on now? What are you planning on? What is what is sort of a research question that you are most interested in at this point?
0: I, my current field studies involving female song are on canyon wrens, Mm -hmm. which are such a great study species. They're a lot of fun. Of course, everyone knows and loves (laughs) the male song.
1: Classic song. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yes. They just ring off of the walls of canyons with that beautiful cascade of the male. Uh, Females sound really different. And this is one of the few species that I know of in which male song and female song is really distinctly different. So... Females have this kind of buzzy song that first rises in pitch and then descends a little bit. And I and and some other colleagues that I'm working with are trying to understand how females use this song. And the fact that it sounds different from male song suggests that they're trying to signal that they're females, right?
1: Yeah, right.
0: They're not just doing the same thing as males. They're indicating something else with that song. And they use it pretty infrequently. They don't just sing spontaneously all that often. But if you play the sound of a female Canyon Wren to a female Canyon Wren, she responds right away by singing really? back at
1: you. Wow. Yeah. With the same song, that buzzy song.
0: That same buzzy song. And interestingly, wow. the male does not sing his male song. Huh. He huh. might appear and look around as if he's interested. He might call a little bit, maybe trying to get his mate to come deal with this problem on their territory. Um, But she's the one who will sing back at it. So it's a really kind of sex-specific communication channel. Females are talking to females.
1: Right. Wow. So Dr. Lauren Benedict is at the University of Northern Colorado. You can find her on Twitter at Lauren Benedict, Lauren with a Y. You can help her out by submitting your recordings of female bird vocalizations to the Female Birdsong Project. That is at femalebirdsong.org. Thanks a lot, Lauren. This was really interesting. Yeah, thanks. It was great talking to you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting it with your membership to the ABA. You get a lot of benefits. I've, I've gone over them at length in this spot in past episodes, but you know, the magazines alone are worth it, I think. You can get more information at aba.org join. Technical production is by John Lowry, who reminds us of that old goal adage, a little goes a long way. Obviously referencing little goals, tendency to vagrate to North America. Who knew? Not me. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who tell me all the time that no man is in Iceland, which I assume is a warning against eating raw fish guts. I've never had any issue with that, but I appreciate their concern. You can find us online at aba.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association, but on Twitter as ABA. Remember, a watched pot never boils, a rolling stone gathers no moss, and one swallow doesn't make a summer, unless it is the summer of 2017 when a swallow-tailed gull Showed up in Seattle, Washington. I think that made a lot of people's years. Questions, comments, come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week.